You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be talking about healthcare disparities and oncology care, and it's obviously a relevant topic for all of us and an incredibly timely topic with everything happening in the United States and internationally. We're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Justine Kahn, who is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Division of Pediatric Hematology, Oncology, and Stem Cell Transplantation at the Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center at Columbia University in New York. Justine, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So I want to reflect on essentially my own training, the training that a lot of us have, which tend to be, at least in hematology and oncology, in urban medical centers. I think a lot of us, our training was with patients of every nationality and race and religion. And so there's a sense of probably an unfair sense that the care provided is equal. And let me ask you more about that. What are the disparities that we all need to know about, again, that may feel different than when we train? Such an interesting question because I also think a lot about medical training and sort of what we're really trained to do and understand about our patients. I also train in urban medical settings and I feel the same. When I think about health disparities, I always want to start by setting myself on the definition, like what are health disparities, right? And I think it's important to remember, and it took me time to remember, that disparities are not just any differences in health, right? They're differences that are avoidable and that arise from the social and economic conditions that determine someone's risk or the actions taken to prevent that illness, right? That's what the WHO says. And so when we think about cancer health disparities, you know, it's adverse differences in the incidence and the prevalence and the mortality and the survivorship and the burden of cancer-related health conditions that exist specifically among disadvantaged or minority populations. And I think it's been quite a reckoning recently for all of us to realize that actually what we're doing is not quite good enough, right? There are issues that we need to start to address, and these include social determinants of health. Absolutely. Can you give some examples? So, you know, thinking about patients that you're seeing at your cancer center, which is also a big urban comprehensive center. Right. So my research focus is really in acute lymphoblastic leukemia and pediatric and adolescent young adult and in Hodgkin lymphoma, which are arguably, you know, the two most treatable cancers that any of us manage on a day-to-day basis. And this is actually what makes them an important paradigm within which to study disparities, because successful treatments are well-established in both upfront and relapse settings. So this is where you actually see disparate outcomes or where you can see, well, everybody should survive what's happening with these certain populations. So work done by a dear friend and colleague of mine, Kira Bona, is doing a lot of work looking at um, household material hardship, like food insecurity, housing, and energy, and how that impacts 
acute lymphoblastic leukemia outcomes. And we've seen that higher household poverty level is associated with increased risk of relapse in ALL. And I've also found that Hispanic patients with ALL do worse both in population studies and in clinical trial setting. And this speaks to sort of one type of potential driver of these disparities. And then most recently, in a, in a big analysis that we did looking at Hodgkin lymphoma outcomes, we found that there was no difference by race and ethnicity in the risk of relapse in patients enrolled on these big COG children's oncology group legacy studies. But then after relapse, when people came off the studies, the Black and Hispanic kids and teens were almost four times more likely to die than the white patients. So these are real tangible differences in survival that are urgent. Absolutely. Thinking back to the teaching on Hodgkin's lymphoma, after this became a much more curable disease, which is a long time ago, 1969, <laughs> there were articles obviously saying, here are the patients who don't do well. And a lot of it was oncologist-based. Don't round the doses down. Don't miss doses. Don't delay doses. But I have to say, it's, it's an eye-opener to realize that some of the differences in outcomes now aren't due to that at all. They're due to other factors like psychosocial and socioeconomic. If we looked at the Hodgkin's disease, mm -hmm. the risk of relapse, so how much higher might it be in a underserved population? And what's the mechanism of that difference? Hodgkin is an interesting one. There are so many different treatment protocols and so many different avenues that one can use to achieve a pretty solid remission. So once you get people there, that's great. But then something happens afterwards because one of those diseases where we're trying to really balance the risk of late effects with upfront cure. So pulling back on some of the radiation and on some of the, the other intensive therapy that we used to use actually has resulted in a slightly higher relapse rate knowing that there are salvage therapies that are highly, highly effective. So then if you have, say, 15 or 20 percent of patients, regardless of where they're from, relapsing, the real question becomes, where are they being treated for salvage? Where are they getting second-line therapies? And I think... A lot of that is about access, and a lot of that is about the cost of these targeted therapies. Who's getting to stem cell transplant, which is a whole different entity? I think a lot of that becomes about access, and this is really what we hypothesized when we found similar relapse rates on the clinical trials, but then afterwards, there was a pretty incredible separation of survival curves. So for some of the listeners and for yourself as well, there was just an article, I believe it was in New York Times, looking at the cost of parking at the major cancer centers. I thought that was fascinating that, you know, parking so interesting. per day. Yes, can be $30 or more, yeah. Uh, yeah. especially in the bigger city. So again, I'd like to drill down a, a little bit further, and there may or may not be data, but I'd love your impression. Let's take a, a hypothetical situation of a adolescent, a young adult with, with Hodgkin's disease, or for that matter, with ALL, who lives in a suburb of one of the big cities, or, you know, so not that close to the major center, is treated in the community for their disease, mm. and then relapse. What are the barriers to getting care for relapse disease at your center and other big cancer centers? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, care for relapse 
I think there are a few barriers. I think if you look at for any guidelines or consensus guidelines about how people should be treated after relapse, the first thing that any of them will say will be look for a clinical trial, find a clinical trial to put this patient on a clinical trial. But when it comes to the reality of life, what if that patient has to travel for, you know, three hours or move to a different city to actually get to a hospital that's running that trial? So part of it speaks to where trials are open. Are there supportive care sort of structures in place at the local community hospital that can help mitigate some of the treatment-related toxicities that can come with salvage? Is there infrastructure that's there? Or does the patient need to be shipped off somewhere else to get the care that we think is good? And then all of the other things that you bring up, like the psychosocial and the support, and those other things get lost along the way, but maybe equally important. I mean, I have to say as a community practitioner, I'm taking care of adults, but it's often it's very hard to get patients in our community to go into downtown Baltimore to be seen at one of the universities. And yeah. that's 15 minutes away. Some of it's logistics, it's transportation, and, it's, and yeah. I think it's also foreboding to go to a big center. Absolutely. I think that that must be true. And I think we at the big centers take that for granted, but I can't imagine that it's easy for someone to say, okay, I'm just, you know, I have this relationship with my doctor and now I'm just going to jump ship a little bit, go downtown and go to this big daunting place for this terrifying experience. So part of what we're doing now is trying to understand those barriers from the patient perspectives, because trying to address these challenges in a vacuum from the urban centers has proven insufficient, so to speak. Yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you about insurance status. And again, we... Ooh, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's something that when I was at university base, it's something I didn't think about much, but how does insurance impact on all those different levels of cancer care, including the incidence and the impact or effectiveness of therapy and survivorship? It's also a great question. When I'm thinking about what impacts cancer outcomes, I'm always thinking about the cancer continuum, right? So what something about what happens before diagnosis, who a patient is, where they come from, something that happens at the time of diagnosis, and then decisions about treatment, and then follow-up, right? So these sort of three big phases along the way. And not only in Hodgkin or in lymphomas, but across basically all tumors, myriad studies have shown that public insurance, low insurance, or no insurance are all associated with more advanced stage at diagnosis, right? So, I mean, fortunately, in something like Hodgkin, we can handle that. But again, that requires more treatment, which confers more long-term toxicities. I did just complete an analysis that we are writing up right now using New York State Medicaid data. So just a cohort of children and adolescent young adults treated in New York entirely with Medicaid to look at sort of if race and ethnicity emerged as independent predictors of outcomes, even among patients with sort of safety net health insurance. So what we found was that despite insurance and regardless of when you were insured, like had you been insured for six months before or did you get emergency Medicaid? Regardless of insurance, Black and Hispanic patients presented with more advanced stage disease, which was interesting and speaks to something about, I have a lot of thoughts about it. But then the other interesting thing is that the survival rates were pretty good. They were around 90 to 92%, which is 
probably five percentage points lower than what one would quote as an overall survival for Hodgkin, which is probably around 95%. And then black race was an independent predictor of poor overall survival, regardless of insurance, even among a uniformly low income cohort. So insurance matters, but also something else is going on. You know, Justine, but I'd like to do it. Some of this may be data-driven and some of it I'm just interested in your clinical experiences as well. You were just talking about how controlling for insurance in a group of patients who are publicly funded insurance, that outcomes vary with race. Let's dig down even further. Why do you think it is? I think the answers are probably pretty complex. I do think, you know, just anecdotally from our own experience in the clinic, we do spend a lot of time from the provider and administrative staff and our ancillary staff, we spend a lot of time trying to get prior authorization for treatments that we know are necessary, right? So if a smaller center or if a smaller practice doesn't have the personnel or human capacity to spend three hours fighting with an insurance company, that's going to be one thing, right? Yeah. You may forego a certain treatment knowing that another one will probably be pretty good, which is crazy to think about. Those are sort of systems barriers. One thing I have to say about insurance that was very exciting, and this doesn't really answer your question, but it makes me think about clinical trials, is that there is a role for policy level interventions here to improve coverage and care. So a lot of us were very thrilled, for lack of a better word, to know that embedded in the COVID recovery bill that was passed this past January was a provision that would require Medicaid to cover the costs of clinical trials. So for most people listening, you may know that Medicaid is managed at the state level. So it was quite an impressive move for the federal government to actually get involved with Medicaid and say, it's time now to figure something out. The other thing that may be contributing to the racial disparities are the external factors that are not directly related to the chemo or the immunotherapy. And I think part of what we're doing now in this conversation and in all of the conversations that are being had across our nation is really trying to reckon with the other social determinants that impact people's outcomes that are not explained by insurance or only by poverty, right? So there are other things. There are structural racism, discrimination, all of these things contribute to cancer-related outcomes, and they're not explained by insurance. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, you know, in a sense, uh, thank you for the work you're doing, and especially because I think it would have been very difficult to dissect out what these other factors are without controlling for insurance. It's the first thing that comes up. People say, well, maybe it's an insurance issue, but but obviously it's more. I want to ask about, you know, you were talking about the cancer care continuum. So I'd like to explore the two extremes of that in a sense. One is, you know, awareness among primary care providers, other healthcare providers, of perhaps the warning signs of cancer, the early signs of cancer. What are some of the barriers there? And then afterwards, I really I want to move on to survivorship care. So mm-hmm. on the front end of it, what are some of the issues that lead to later diagnosis and how can we improve on that situation? You know, that's a hard one because I think it comes from multiple levels. I think it comes from access, as we've a little bit been talking about, and it comes from the patient side and then the provider side. So if a patient is not linked in with the healthcare system, 
they are necessarily going to be diagnosed later, right? They're not going to show up at the ER until they have some symptoms. And we've sort of seen in Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a disease that is really diagnosed on physical exam in most cases, right? Starts with a physical exam, which is fairly unique in cancer medicine. We rely a lot on scans and on blood tests and, uh, you know, but feeling an enlarged lymph node in someone's neck is the first step with a lymphoma. And that requires a patient to show up and to have access and to know. And then it also requires a physician to have the time and the means necessary to make referrals or to sort of expedite a workup process, which I think is not always easy, again, because of staffing or because of logistics or because of communication with the patient to sort of convey what the differential diagnosis is at that moment, which is certainly terrifying for not only the patient, but also the provider who's working this up and probably doesn't see it every day. Right, right. And again, let's look at the other side of cancer care after care is completed. I did mm. personally did a study of uh, women who had completed treatment for breast cancer, and five years later, among the group who were alive and well, 50% were lost to follow-up. So I wanted to get your sense in a pediatric population. My sense of it is that the loss to follow-up group is much lower than that, but what is the data on that? And again, what are some of your thoughts in terms of how we might improve on that? So with the younger, younger patients, I think we hold on pretty tightly to them and they hold on pretty tightly to us. The challenge becomes when you treat a patient who's 12, 13, 14, 15, and then they go off to college or they transition into to medical oncology, I think we do a terrible job of following people through transition. There's not a great mechanism for pediatrics to transfer into medical oncology. I think our colleagues who do this in hematology, there are some very extraordinary sickle cell transition programs. And I think we're a little bit behind in clinical oncology in this zone. I will say that in our Hodgkin study, in the patients who were enrolled on clinical trials, the relapse age, like I think the median age of relapse was 18, right? So right when they're about to go off and almost, I would say definitely 50% or more of them got lost, which made our study very, very challenging. And also what happens during survivorship, that this is a real concern. We do lose a lot of our patients. We are in the midst of developing a collaborative clinical trial that will be a joint effort between the children's oncology group and then the adult intergroups, so Alliance and SWOG and all of the adult clinical trials consortia. And this is going to be a large, over a thousand patients on a Hodgkin study. And the goal is to continue follow-up for about 10 to 15 years. And I'll be frank with you, I know it's going to be a challenge. Well, I think is that by itself is going to be interesting. What will be the follow-up rate? And in this situation, with a very intense effort to keep patients engaged in follow-up. I think telehealth, I think maybe this rapid acceptance of telehealth that happened with COVID potentially could help, especially in the AYA-aged patients who don't really want to travel back from college or have other stuff going on. Visiting via telehealth is also good, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, I wanted to ask you, being an expert in healthcare disparities and cancer care, please lay out for us sort of your suggestions. What are some of the things that practitioners like myself can do in our own practices, our own lives to try to eliminate disparities? That is also a great question. You brought up earlier medical training, and part of it is about 
cultural sensitivity. And I think part of it is that we, in medicine, in any aspect, right, in any training for medicine, we're really, the focus is really on learning how to do a physical exam and learning how to create a differential diagnosis and ask questions that'll get you towards the answer or something like that, right? And that's the kind of muscle we build. But then the thing that we know less about or that we all feel less comfortable talking about is any topic related to social determinants of health. I think in medical training, at my medical school, it's a very wonderful program at Mount Sinai. And we focus on this a lot because we're in East Harlem and it's really at the forefront of the curriculum that they do at Mount Sinai. But a lot of times these types of questions and this type of inquiry is not part of what we learn to ask about. And it's also a skill I think that we all need to build because it's not comfortable. And also if someone comes to you and says, yes, actually, thank you for asking. I can't pay my rent and I'm about to get evicted. Having the resources on the other end to respond to that is a whole different thing, right? So of course you can be empathetic and concerned, but if you don't have the social workers or some support staff to help facilitate the social services that this patient needs, your hands are sort of tied. So it starts with asking questions, but then also people need support, I think. Absolutely. I have to say this has been an incredibly interesting conversation. And I really also want to reflect very much, Justine, on what you just said about that. These are important topics to talk to patients about. And for the most part, we don't learn how to do that and we don't practice it probably as much as we could. So for teaching us about it and for just a really interesting conversation, I want to thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. And I think it's important as, you know, this conversation, just talking about these topics, bringing it into mainstream, this is what we have to do. Absolutely. So I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode and for listening to all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, publications, and healthcare professional resources. Please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. The LLS Copay Assistance Program assists patients with treatment-related copays and deductibles for prescribed medication, insurance premiums, and non-diagnostic lab scans and tests. For more information on program eligibility and how to apply, please visit lls.org slash copay. And finally, I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to your joining us on a future episode. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.